Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Morning, everybody. You're listening to the Morning We Have Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. It's myself and Dallas Jackson today. We are going to take you right into the best version of the Morning We Have Call, the Tuesday version. We got plenty to look forward to. We're going to have some uh, former President Trump fact checking on your end. Uh, also, look out for some commercials that we're going to have on some research from Super Bowl consumer data uh, over from Valinx over there. So, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, but we will see you on the other side. Welcome, everybody. Again, it's a Tuesday. I know you're probably wondering, where's Kevin? Where's Mikey? Uh, today, they're a little bit under the weather today, so we're hoping for the best for them. We're going to get to the weather itself in a little bit, but Dallas, how are we feeling today? What's what's the vibe going on? Um, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, it's just going to be Luke and I hanging out today. Uh, I didn't realize it snowed last night, so when I woke up, I kind of shocked and surprised to see a bunch of frost on the ground. But it's been pretty nice weather-wise in Hempstead recently. The weather's been kind of nice and, like, it was warm yesterday, I'd like to say, and the warm the day before. But the snow was kind of surprising for me. But today, we're just going to really hang out, bring you some super fun, delightful stories, some very timely stories, I'd like to say, even though we didn't have a show last week due to snow concerns. But Luke and I are going to do the best with this two-man crew, but we're going to wish Mikey and Kevin the very best as they feel better hopefully and if they're listening we love and appreciate the both of you oh yeah please get better i know it's always a tricky season when winter comes around for oh, yeah. everything through there granted, uh, anything we're looking forward to at all this week anything you got going on something i'm looking forward to this weekend actually is the oscars on sunday okay okay my boyfriend ryan is a big oscars guy so he's been like keeping a spreadsheet of all the oscar movies and he's been trying to watch every single one nominated for an award and I believe he has, the last time, when I talked to him last night, he had seven movies left to watch. Ooh, but okay. he's Which been ones? he's been powering through. Um, Women Talking was one of the ones that he mentioned. The Whale. He hasn't seen The Whale yet, but he's going to watch it soon. Um, a couple of the short films he's been waiting on seeing. Um, but when I talked to him, his favorite movie that he's seen out of all of them has been Babylon. Mm-hmm. And that one's nominated for, I think, costume best yeah, costume not, not best picture not yet. best God, picture didn't get there but his favorite best picture movie when we had this conversation it was between well we had a long discussion because my favorite best picture nominee is everything everywhere all at once mm, yep. i think that movie is amazing i cry every time i watch it but i think mm, 
he he really liked everything everywhere all at once but he said it wasn't his favorite i think it was the banshees in a sheeran okay yep was one up there for him um he also he was gonna see triangle he watched triangle sadness last night um and he also i think really liked tar those are his favorites but my top pick is um everything everywhere all at once all right, so you got you got a couple options there, mm-hmm. if anything. I've heard the Banshees of Ian Sheeran. I heard that was going to be a, yeah. a good contender through there. He also but. really liked All Quiet on the Western Front, though, the war movie. The Apple TV um, one, yeah. I personally, when it comes to war movies, I get a little queasy because it's a lot, and they're all very intense, and I do feel like they all kind of do the same thing, if that makes sense. Mm. They like are just about, for lack of better words, a white man who looks like a child going to war and then facing the horrors of war which i'm not trying to short credit anyone who's been in that situation but i feel like maybe we don't need more movies telling that perspective but that's my two cents on the matter we need a different perspective which i'm not really sure what different perspective we can offer when it comes to war movies based in that time period and in that era of events but yeah i think everywhere everything everywhere all at once is my pick for best picture um it's just a very beautiful movie. It's a very powerful movie, if you haven't seen it. I heard it's going to be a sweep, possibly. Hopefully it's the, uh... a sweep, because if Ki-Hu uh, Kwan doesn't win supporting actor, I will have personal problems with the Academy. If You know, sh- I think everybody's got personal problems with the Academy. That is very true. Yeah. The Academy has isn't always the best. Um, Michelle Yeoh fully deserves, I think, lead actress. She was phenomenal, and it was such a... I've seen people talk about how she didn't do much but i think her performance is actually so inspiring from a woman's perspective on facing societal standards your family not supporting you and your dreams um Mm. and just trying to do your best and then realizing you've made mistakes and hurt people and i think the most important part of that movie is the fact that it's about a relationship between a mother and a daughter and i feel like we don't get a lot of movies that handle stuff like that and they handle it in a really well-rounded way just about despite it being the two of you you can still butt heads and make mistakes and hurt one another but then in the end you're still gonna love each other even if people love you in a different way and then you just reconcile with that so i cry every time now i know this is uh, not really on the movie end but i know there was a whole a situation about of course the slap from last year oh my gosh and chris rock apparently had done a netflix live comedy stand i haven't watched it but i've seen clips of it on like tiktok and instagram Mm. i think we as a society need to move on it's like why is this what we're fixated exactly you know everything if we're all at once and stuff like the moves and strides that society has made in this round of films i think should be at the forefront and i understand that it was a spectacle last year i felt like we dragged it on for too long yep i think it is a situation that occurred it shouldn't have occurred neither party i understand will smith being frustrated and angry but you don't just do that but you just don't slap somebody on live tv no on top of that do i think the joke was in poor taste yes because Mm. i think we need to stop making jokes about women's bodies and people not even just women's bodies people's bodies in general like that can't be a joke anymore i think we've moved on as a society um so both parties i think had some share of being in the wrong um but the way that the oscars were like we're gonna have a special crisis task force to handle situations like this like this is just now this now makes me feel like we're doing over policing this feels crazy um i understand that 
if something happened, you should have somebody, like a team of people to handle it. Mm. But to make the slap the reason why you now decide to have a crisis task force where wherein like just for a safety reason, you should have always had people to handle like situations like this. But to make this the incident or the cause of you finally being like, we need to have a team of people on the sidelines in case anything goes wrong. It feels gross. It feels really weird and feels misplaced. So at the Oscars, stop talking about it. Let's move on. Yeah, I always think of the, the what was it, in Jimmy Cook's, the Drake 21 Savage line. Oh, if yeah. I was Will Smith, I would have slapped him with a stick or something. Yeah, I was, like, line, I, I was like, I was like, what? What's going on here? The, it, it, was, it hadn't even been like a month or two after. They mm-hmm. already were making rap lyrics about it. I was Which like, oh, I was man. like, did you guys plant this? Did you know? Because that's crazy. But then you think about the Academy's response, too. Because it oh. was, you know, it took like, it was just dragged on, like you mm-hmm. said, for too long. Like, mm-hmm. well. I don't know if we should have been banned for 10 years. I mean, granted, I think they probably should be like, okay, we got to let you be a little bit. I mean, I know he just released Emancipation on Apple Plus, mm-hmm. so I know that was the whole thing. But also on top of that, I don't like making this argument, but there are people who have done way worse things who still get to actively be a part of Hollywood. Roman or the Polanski. F- yeah. There's still people who get to actively be a part of Hollywood and be a part of the Academy and take pride in being represented by the Academy or applauded by the Academy. Mm. And they've done vile things. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't want to name names, but they've done vile things. And Will Smith is going to be the person where the Academy is going to put their foot down mm. and be like, we're going to put a ban on you. We don't. You're no longer allowed. Da, 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 da. And then we just have to look at the Academy and be like, but didn't you still give awards to this person? Don't you still allow this person to be an active part of Hollywood? Doesn't, no, this, doesn't this person still get to make a lot of money all the time? Um, do you, do you think race had anything to do with it? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I remember having like, ugh, Twitter was such a terrible place for such a long time because a lot of the commentary from the black community was just like, you can't do this in a white space because mm-hmm. it reflects poorly on the black community. It takes the light away from the the wins that the black community got from the Oscars, like Will Smith winning. An Oscar for Best Actor. King Richard, yeah. For King Richard. King Richard? Nobody talks about King Richard anymore. No. Because all they talk about is the slap. Even though King Richard was a phenomenal movie. I sobbed, which isn't an amazing feat. I am a big crybaby. But I remember just hysterically sobbing. And I also watched this movie with Ryan. And I remember in Will Smith's speech towards the middle of the movie when he's talking about, like, all... I think, like, about the sacrifices he's made for his family and stuff like that. I just remember being, like this is the speech like this is the moneymaker speech and i wish we could play it for you all but if you haven't seen it watch king richard watch the speech i remember just saying it and ryan was like this is an oscar award-winning speech and i cried Mm. and also like serena and venus williams deserves more like love for that movie just that's my two cents the black women that are at the center of that story deserve Oh, was it More Beyonce praise. for the opening performance? Yeah, what? Like, like, no one remembers that now? No one remembers any of these factors. Like, nobody, t- I feel like nobody talks about King Richard anymore. Nobody took the time to applaud Serena and Venus Williams for just their lives being told in that way. Nobody took the time to acknowledge Beyonce's role in the creation of the movie. It was all about the slap. And I feel like that's such a disservice to a story that should become central to the black community about people... Tr- triumphs and like tribulations in effectively white spaces like tennis is one of the sports that 
has been a white space for a very long time. Mm. And then these two young black girls from an inner city community defied the odds and like just became two of the best champions in history. Oh yeah. And then it paves the way for Sloane Stevens, Lionel like Osaka. Let's like, t- like nobody Coco Golf. I love Coco Golf. Oh, she Coco is one Golf, of my favorite yes. Instagram follows. But nobody talks about that movie anymore mm. because of the slap and it's so unfair to all the amazing people who put in the time and the energy and the work to make that story be told and shown in such a beautiful and amazing way. Like it is a gorgeous movie, yep. but nobody talks about it and it's so unfair. And this was a mini version of Dallas's soapbox. I'd like to thank oh, yeah. um, Dallas and Luke's soapbox, because if you haven't seen King Richard, watch King Richard and tell Venus and Serena Williams that you love them. And don't, and, you know, don't forget when the slap happened, Chris Rock was presenting for best documentary, and you know what won that year? Questlove's Summer of Soul. And nobody, and nobody talks nobody about talks Questlove. About it. It's so un. Yep. The slap did a disservice to the black community. That is my. There was a. I I remember I was reading the AP article about it the other day, and Chris Rock was saying is one of his jokes was my my parents taught me one thing: never fight in front of white people. Yeah. That was because hey, that's that's gonna happen. Yeah. You're gonna. It it. It took the spotlight away from too many people who deserve it because Questlove is an uns. I feel like nobody applauds Questlove as much as they should. I love Questlove. The only thing, oh, he's the drummer on the roots and like, Jimmy Fallon. He like. he is does so much more than that. I if you don't know Questlove, take a quick time to Google search Questlove and then just envelop yourself in his amazing art and how amazing of a person he is. Yeah. So shout out Questlove for being a cool dude and congratulations on winning an Oscar. Well, that that's gonna that's our little uh, mini wrap there for the uh, I guess the the wrap of year in review for the Oscars. I guess I guess so. I, this I was know. a fun discussion. But I know we we do have some general news headlines, weather oh, yeah. headlines, and then we're gonna get to an interview uh, that Danny uh, DiCrescenzo yesterday did with uh, Nathaniel Rakich over there beforehand. So what we have for that. But otherwise, Dallas, it is time for the dish. Go on ahead. What do we got for us? So for this episode of Dallas's Dish, we're going to be focusing on some United States news. So according to FBI officials, four U.S. citizens have been kidnapped after gunmen opened fire on their, on their vehicle in northern Mexico border city of Matamoros. A cold snap could bring snow as far south as the southern Appalachians next week and bring snow to the mid-Atlantic. So if you live in those areas or know people who do, be prepared for the snow. The FBI is also investigating a quote-unquote suspicious death of a woman on a carnival cruise ship recently and in Atlanta 35 people have been detained after a violent protest at a uh, training facility for police in the city of Atlanta so those are your headlines for today thinking about that a carnival cruise ship it's kind of the mystery there I always remember there's a Twilight Zone episode where, like people just start disappearing off cruise ships oh. and they start seeing people but don't see people and that's a whole thing mm. but yeah that was a fun time back in the day. One thing that's not a fun time, the weather, unfortunately. I wish I could say it was better than it is today, but if you're loving a winter wonderland, you are in luck today. This morning, you're going to get plenty of snow coming through for you for a little bit. Going to get snow until just about 7.15 or so, around that 8 o'clock mark. It's going to go up to 36 there, and you're going to have a high of 45, uh, mostly sunny and windy during that time, according to our friends over there at the Weather Channel. Uh, But nevertheless, you're going to get a good amount of weather there. But like Dallas said, I was certainly surprised for all that snow this morning. Uh, But hopefully you aren't as much, if anything. But if you like making some snow angels and you like making some snowmen, up to you if you do want to try and do that. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be just enough for packing that snow, but something you can definitely look forward to when the time comes. But 
We are going to go into a bit of some interview time today because I know, as Dallas had said, we're a little bit short on the staffing for the moment. Uh, but granted, uh, we're going to go and play a interview that Danny did with Nathaniel Rakic yesterday from 538, of course. Uh, actually, I've, I've seen him a couple times actually watching on my own clips. That's pretty cool that uh, this one happened. Uh, so granted, we're going to go throw you right into that, and we will come on back when the time comes. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. President Biden is a historically unpopular incumbent within his own party. Recent polls usually put around 60% of Democrats desiring to see someone else nominated in 2024. But will this translate into something during the primary season? I'm joined by senior elections analyst for 538 and friend of the show, Nathaniel Rakic, to discuss just that. Nathaniel, welcome back to the Morning Wake Up Call. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And I want to start with this question that I've always had about the situation, because the awkward part for me there's clear evidence that Democrats want somebody else besides Biden on the ticket, but no alternative seems remotely willing or positioned to give the president a serious challenge. What, in your view, explains this really odd dynamic? Yeah, I think it comes down to party discipline within the Democratic Party. And, and, you know, as you kind of mentioned, there are a lot of Democrats in polls who say they want an alternative to Biden. And a lot of that comes down to his age, concerns that he isn't up to uh, beating Donald Trump again or Ron DeSantis if, if DeSantis were to get the Republican nomination. Um, but But the issue is that, you know, kind of a lot of the people who um, might be ideal alternatives. So, you know, maybe think one of the party's younger governors or something like that. Um, you know, they are kind of members in good standing of the party and they would never take on an incumbent president in a primary. That's something that you see kind of more insurgent uh, figures do. People like Bernie Sanders um, on the Democratic side. I don't think Sanders is going to run again necessarily, but you already have Marianne Williamson, who of course kind of belongs to this more progressive uh, anti-establishment outsider wing of the party. She's running Running against Biden, but she isn't kind of you know strong enough to to defeat him. She doesn't check a lot of the boxes. She's she's not probably up to the challenge of beating Trump or or DeSantis. She has never won a campaign. She's run for office twice. She's lost both times. Um, she's also kind of almost as old as Biden. She's seventy years old and he's eighty. So you know she doesn't really fit the profile of someone who maybe could give Biden a run for his money um, in the in kind of an ideal circumstance. Marianne Williamson, author of Age of Miracles, Embracing the New Midlife, published author. She's got that going for her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, obviously Williamson ran in 2020. Um, she is a best-selling author. She is a longtime motivational speaker, very popular. She's appeared on Oprah. She's not a nobody, and she has a a devoted fan base. Um, I actually went to her campaign kickoff rally uh, on Saturday, um, and there were a lot of people very enthusiastic about her. Um, but you know, kind of in a political context, it is different, right? She doesn't have this kind of you know, deep political Rolodex and organization. Um, last time she. Ran in 2020, she had to drop out because she ran out of money. Um, and obviously, beating an incumbent president who's going to have all sorts of endorsements, access to basically limitless amount of money. I mean, it's a daunting task. There's a reason that no incumbent president has ever lost a primary before. It really would require everything to go right. And Marianne Williamson um, just doesn't um, check those boxes as a candidate. So obviously, it's not Marianne Williamson. But build for me based on what Democrat voters necessarily want, build for me the perfect Biden replacement. Doesn't have to be a specific politician, just some of the traits that this person would have. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, kind of if you ask Democrats, you know, why are you nervous about Biden? The things that keep coming up are age and electability. So I think that you would have to get somebody 
uh, younger, somebody who has kind of a vitality. Um, you think about kind of, you know, on the Republican side, this is an imperfect analogy because there are many things kind of that are unique about Donald Trump. But you think about Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump. You know, Trump is obviously Trump and he, you know, is a very popular figure within the party. But Ron DeSantis kind of represents a more youthful, um, you know, arguably more vigorous alternative. He's got young children. You know, he's, he's you know, kind of traditionally handsome, um, you know, that kind of thing, not to make it kind of all very vain, but a lot of politics is kind of about surface level considerations like that. So I think, you know, somebody young and charismatic and the Democrat party and then somebody who is seen as electable which usually means someone who is a little more on the moderate side i think biden himself of course was seen this way in in 2020 so i don't think it needs to be someone more moderate than biden but somebody who is similar to him and not kind of of the the bernie sanders's of the world or the marianne williamson's um you know but of course again the people who are politically aligned with Biden in terms of ideology are his allies. They're the people who wouldn't dream of running against him. So, um, you know, he's kind of in a, a good position for someone who has such soft numbers, right? He's kind of cornered the market on the type of Democrat who could beat him. Yeah. And the ambitious governors or some senators are usually on his side or they just don't have the pathway to do it. But let's say there is a three to four person primary throw in names like Pritzker from Illinois, Phil Murphy from Jersey, my home state, Gavin Newsom from California, and then maybe Bernie or someone else on the progressive wing and Klobuchar, someone on the more right side. If Biden walks into the room and he's able to mop up, let's say 30, 35 percent of the vote, is that enough to win that kind of primary? I mean, quite frankly, just to to say off the top, like, I don't think there's any way that you would see those types of themes run against yeah, him. Yeah. Um, this but, is all hypothetical. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think being the incumbent president, again, like I said, kind of having access to the kind of you know money and organization that he has. Yeah, I mean, on the Democratic side, you have um, more proportional delegate rules than on the Republican side, where on the Republican side, we saw in 2016, Trump can win, could win, um, you know, majorities of delegates simply by winning 35 to 40% of the vote. That would be a little bit slower um, for, or, you know, on the Democratic side, because you'd still see if somebody wins, you know, 20% of the vote, they would get a small share of the delegates. But yeah, it's kind of hard to engage with that hypothetical because in a world where um, those people are running against Biden like that, he would have weaknesses that that aren't necessarily evident today. And and you know, I would expect that you know, say we were to get in a time machine and you know drop those five characters into you know, I guess like what's the first state now, South Carolina, um, you know, on in February twenty twenty four or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you have an incumbent president running, if he shows strength at all, and, uh, you know, then those people are going to get out of the way very quickly. Um, if he shows weakness, then then obviously you have a, you know, you're kind of off to the races. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of why, like, so much of this really is decided before a single vote is cast in terms of the, you know, people, politicians making determinations about the, their opponent's strengths and weaknesses. If you're just tuning into the morning wake up call, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by senior elections analyst from 538, Nathaniel Rakich, talking about Democrats' willingness to go for someone else besides Biden, but no real alternative emerging now. I want to give you a more realistic hypothetical, uh, Nathaniel. So let's say he does get the nomination and he's the candidate, he's the nominee. Will there be a coalition of Democratic voters who just say, you know what, I'm not going to vote for this guy, never again Biden, I might just write in for Bernie or something like that? Or will rank and file Democrats mostly fall in line behind Joe Biden again? 
No, I, I don't think the that they would uh, they would defect. I think that the the kinds of things you're seeing, it's it's Biden's in kind of a unique position where you ask Democrats, do you want him as your nominee? Most of them say no. If you ask, do you like the guy or do you approve of how he's doing? Most of them say yes. He has something like an eighty percent approval rating among Democrats. So I think it's more of a trepidation about you know, kind of going into battle with him as your standard bearer, but kind of conditional on that being the case. I think you know the vast majority of Democrats are going to go. You know, they're going to say, "All right, we're going to, you know, this is the uh, the the kind of the candidate that we have in our corner, and we are going to back him." And you know, maybe wouldn't have been my first choice, but um, but yeah, there's there's very little evidence that they would abandon him in a in a general election. You, you know, kind of you mentioned the the kind of write-in Bernie scenario, and you know, I think you know that may have been a problem in you know in past campaigns but um you know you, if you look at polls um i think uh, i looked i saw a poll the other day i think it was from morning consult that found that only 21% of democrats think that biden is too conservative so the the camp of people who are kind of are progressives who are unhappy with him for that reason because he's not far left enough is is fairly small um the you know like i mentioned uh, a larger group of democrats are are trepidatious about him for the reasons of age and electability so um so no i think uh, that is certainly when faced with an alternative who almost all democrats would agree is much worse in either trump or DeSantis, or i suppose another republican if, if something were to happen on that side um then um no these people are are going to vote for for joe biden all right and i don't want to get ahead of myself but i want to think about Four years from 2024, 2028, mm. whether Biden wins again or it's DeSantis or it's Trump part two, there's nobody, at least right now, that has a clear claim to be the heir to the Democratic Party, at least post Obama. Should the Democrats really change how they recruit candidates or do they have to pray the next Barack Obama comes along? Because we saw turnover in Congress with some of the oldest members of the House recently, and they have the oldest president of all time currently in office. And it feels like no matter how unpopular Trump is, he still has a hold and he has DeSantis waiting if he doesn't get it in 2024. What does Biden's current predicament say about the future of candidates in the Democratic Party being able to whip up support around the country, not just in their region? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I, I agree with that. I think that Kamala Harris is the obvious heir on the Democratic side. She is the the vice president to the sitting Democratic president. And once Biden is off the scene, uh, whether because he's term limited or because he loses, uh, I think that it passes to her. The question is kind of whether she can hold on to that title, right? I think she would be a, a relatively weak, you know, um, front runner in that regard in the 2028 uh, primary and yeah you could see somebody you know coming from you know one of these governors or senators that democrats have um which i think they they have a fairly deep bench you know we've mentioned several of those names um you know and maybe one of them is the next barack obama as as you put it um so i don't necessarily think democrats have a a problem i i, I think they have a it's a little bit of an unsettled field, right? They have a, a weak front runner and then a lot of possible alternatives. And I do think that um, maybe if there were somebody that Biden were more confident in, then maybe he would decide not to run for re-election this year. It seems fairly clear that he's going to run. Um, Jill Biden recently said it's, it's just a matter of finding a time and a place for an announcement, which I think is basically tantamount to an announcement. Um, but uh, but I think in the long run, you know, this is a very divided country. Basically, half of people are Democrats and half of people are Republicans. Um, you know, Democrats may lose one election because they have a flawed candidate. You know, maybe Biden will 
show his age this year and lose. Maybe he'll win this year, and then next time around, Harris or whoever it is will kind of prove to be kind of uninspiring, and then they'll lose. But in the long run, I don't think Democrats have a problem because there's you know, there's always going to be about half the country that supports them. And Republicans may, uh, you know, also have candidate quality problems of their own, of course. Um, you know, we think we saw that Trump as a, as a weak candidate in 2020 and, and the candidates he endorsed in 2022 were also weak. Um, it remains to be seen what Republicans will do in 2024 and 2028. But, um, you know, kind of uh, it takes two to tango. So the benches are deep. They just have to get some starters minutes and then we'll figure out who can hang. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's that's a that's a good point. It's kind of like you're, you know, it's the first week of the season and nobody's really sure what uh, or 2028 would be the first week of the season for in, in terms of Democrats. And, and you're trying to you're trying to try people out and see who um, who has the yeah the ability to hang, like you said. Once again, that was senior elections analyst for 538 and friend of the show, Nathaniel Rakich, discussing Democrats disinterest in Biden 2024 and if that'll mean anything come primary season. Nathaniel, thanks again. Thank you. This is your wake up call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. And welcome back, everybody. That was Roddy Rich and Mustard there with Ballin'. And I will tell you, if you are going to ball for anything, it would be for all these great commercials we had over the past year, of course, uh, for the Super Bowl. I know we had a good amount there. I personally enjoyed the Workday one with Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, that was a fun time. So definitely got to hear that you're a rock star when they're not really rock stars, but really Oswald at the marketing firm. So interesting to see how that works through there. Uh, but what's also interesting to see in that sense is that granted I know we all dread commercial breaks I know we're all like we just want to get back to watching our American Ninja Warrior what everybody's watching nowadays um, but granted it's really a pastime for anyone who's glued to their TV sets if they need be uh, but again obviously advertisers really want to go and utilize a lot of that advertising capital they have with the eyeballs they can attract uh, during the big game as well uh, so here to talk about it is going to be Clark Jens Jenkinson a senior research consultant at Valinx just to see on this new study they had uh, in terms of the consumer outreach uh, for the Super Bowl as well. So, uh, Clark, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Luke. Yes, lovely to be here. Uh, yeah, very uh, excited to, to be talking about the Super Bowl and an excellent bridge. As you said, I think uh, everyone's uh, constantly seeking to get out of those uh, ad breaks as, as quickly as possible, but they can actually have quite a big impact in terms of consumer behavior. Yeah, and so we'll, we'll get into that for you now. So granted, I know you mentioned a lot about consumer behavior and things like that. So first, if you just want to give a general overview of your study, but then also your study itself, it says that you looked at, uh, quote, actual demand rather than intent. What's the main difference between demand and intent in this case? Yeah, absolutely. So I should mention that uh, Veilings, which is the agency I work for, uh, we do things a little bit differently to traditional research. Um, so in a, in a typical survey, you'd be asking consumers around their verbal intention to uh, commit to buying a product. So for instance, you know, how likely are you to buy this can of Pepsi Max, for instance? Um, but there's a huge gap between what people actually say and what they do uh, with their own money. Um, and we, when we talk about this gap, uh, in academic terms, it's called uh, the hypothetical bias. It can really distort results uh, in online research. So uh, we at Bellings, we have a bit of a unique methodology. Uh, we gather consumer insights by actually asking consumers to place a bid uh, on a product reflecting the maximum they're willing to pay for that particular product. Um, and if, they, uh, if their bid is accepted, then they actually win uh, the auction and we'll be able to uh, send them the product and they'll actually have to pay and, and receive the product for real. 
And so to kind of follow up with that. um, Yeah. So why does this feel like such a huge finding now as compared to other Super Bowls? Or was there something special about this round of commercials from your research? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, in general, the Super Bowl has always been a a pinnacle of sort of television advertising. Um, And uh, in recent years, we've seen that a lot of our brands that we work with have been questioning um, you know, the, the necessity of spending these millions of dollars on a, a single commercial spot. Um, and especially in the era of sort of shifting entertainment preferences and um, particularly among younger consumers, we thought it was such a hot topic to cover and to really un, uh, discover the kinds of impacts that uh, the Super Bowl ads can have on on consumer behavior. And, and you mentioned those shifting preferences. And I know that obviously with older Super Bowls, you probably had a lot of the, you know, all, I guess older generation back then who would always want to go and watch and really just be overly consumed by these items. Because you think of like Apple's 1984 commercial, for example, everybody wanted a Macintosh after that. Uh, but granted, you see nowadays where you mentioned Pepsi Max and things before that the younger consumers aren't necessarily going to be uh, in that same uh, vein, if you will, if anything, uh, mainly because because you mentioned that, at least in your own report, that one statistic that was really found that Gen Z had seen a 1% decrease in their usual demand for these products over a regular period of time. So why do you think that's necessarily a difference as compared to other generations before? Yeah, I think it's such a such an interesting finding. Um, so yeah, we basically conducted a study uh, to develop a baseline before the Super Bowl weekend. And then we took uh, a pulse check after just to, to understand what kinds of impacts the, the advertising had uh, over the Super Bowl Sunday, um, we did see that median demand among those 18 to 25-year-olds um, actually shrunk, as you said, by uh, 1% overall. Um, there were quite a lot of nuances in the data, and certain categories were more affected than others. Um, and it's and it's rather difficult to say with any real confidence, but um, based on the research, we uh, tended to think that it's probably due to changing entertainment preferences and also the media mix. Uh, that brands are activating uh, in Super Bowl um, with a much more of a skew towards um, live television. Um, And we've also seen that there's uh, been increasing skepticism, especially among these younger consumers towards brand advertising, which which is something that might have contributed to the results that we saw here. And moving over to a different section of your study, um, it seemed to show that non-advertisers also saw increases in demand in the wake of the big game. Just for our audience, could you explain what a non-advertiser is or who they are, as well as how they also potentially cashed in after the Super Bowl? Yeah, absolutely. So another really interesting finding, uh, we, in order to sort of further contextualize the results of our study, uh, we also included a non-advertiser benchmark product. Uh, for each advertiser that we studied in order to check whether there was some kind of halo effect from advertising at the Super Bowl. So, um, and I mentioned Pepsi before, uh, we tested the Pepsi Zero Sugar product, which we knew would be advertising at the Super Bowl, uh, but we also included uh, Coca-Cola Zero Sugar as well, which we suspected wouldn't be advertising uh, as frequently. And uh, as you said, our research did show that uh, some of these non-advertisers did cash out um, and received um, substantially high demand. Um, and overall, we saw a median 4.2% uh, increase uh, after the Super Bowl weekend. Um, we theorized internally um, this could be due to a couple of different factors, such as a potential halo effect um, of elevated category awareness. And that's something that we definitely saw in beverages specifically. Um, and then we also guessed that this could be um, potentially due to misattribution of the brand as well. Um, which is sadly something we also see uh, when we run these kinds of studies. 
Um, and finally, we also thought that it's, it's quite possible that non-advertisers were deploying other marketing efforts uh, to offset potentially the added uh, awareness around the advertiser brand or potentially to take advantage of the buzz around the category, like I said before. Now, of course, obviously a lot of advertisers are going to relate to certain demographics and key areas of people to focus on and things like that. And one thing you had found, at least when it came for demand, at least with these products, is that women were about 21% on the increase in that uh, consumer consumption there. So what would be the attribution of this and the gender gap, so to speak, in this instance? Yeah, indeed. So while there was a lot of nuance between the different products and categories that we studied, we tended to see that women were... Um, showing higher demand after the Super Bowl weekend. Um, and in terms of the specific differences, a lot of them were manifesting around beverage categories. Uh, so for instance, for Pepsi Zero Sugar, we saw a 45% increase in demand. Uh, for Michelob Ultra, we saw a 40% improvement in demand. Um, same for Heineken's uh, non-alcoholic beer, which recorded 40%. Uh, Crown Royal Whiskey, women saw a 26% increase in demand. Um, and so really we saw uh, much of this um, increase in, uh, in women's uh, willingness to spend uh, on, on products down to um, both uh, alcoholic and non-alcoholic beer, um, which admittedly was growing from a very low base, but it was a key reason why, um, for instance, Michelob Ultra uh, specifically was one of our biggest winners. Uh, we can sort of theorize uh, again um, about the the sort of uh, reasons behind this, but we know that, for instance, um, men uh, remained largely flat or were slightly positive, uh, which was particularly true for beer. And that's something that probably could be attributed to um, broader levels of category awareness um, pre-game. Uh, so we just saw that women were growing from a much uh, lower base. And just throughout our questions with you, we've been asking you to theorize on maybe some reasons behind um, mm. different growths in or growths and decreases in certain demographics. But just for one last time, just to theorize, perhaps looking to the future, how do you think this study could change the way Super Bowl ads are priced and the processes companies use to evaluate whether the price tag is worth the purchase? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we all are firm believers in, in the power of our behavioral research here at Baylinks. We know that when we ask consumers whether they'd be interested in buying a product nine times out of 10, they say yes. But when it comes time to actually part ways with their own uh, hard-earned cash, then things can look a little different. Um, so we really believe that um, using behavioral research to measure the true impact of uh, Super Bowl advertising and all advertising for that matter uh, can have a big impact in terms of demand uh, for consumer products. And we, uh, we take great pride in doing uh, work like communications testing determine whether um, ads are actually having their real world impact and can actually drive value for brands. Um, but yes, as I said, uh, I think the way that Super Bowl ads are priced uh, and and the you know significant costs involved um, both in the development of creative and also paying for those media spots as well should certainly be under a fine tooth comb. And we really think that um, behavioral research like ours can help guide brands in their decision making. And again, we're talking to Clark Jen Jenkinson, the senior research consultant for Valings over here. So I'll give you another, I guess, theoretical on this end. So obviously you mentioned that Gen Z had that decrease over there in terms of, you know, really consuming through brands. So how do you think advertisers in general could probably you know, work with the Generation Z in terms of gaining their uh, consumer abilities there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, it's a tricky one. Uh, us at, at Veilings, we're, uh, we're often tasked with assessing brands' effectiveness in, in reaching these key demographics. 
I think, um, you know, by and large, learnings that we've taken um, is really all about uh, authenticity and, and remaining uh, true to uh, to the brand's kind of key values and, and culture and not uh, appealing too much to, um, you know, sort of uh, splashy or, or sort of thematic and short-lived uh, marketing stunts. So really trying to drive a, a really, truly authentic and long-lasting relationship with consumers that, uh, that you know, is is likely to result in, um, in increased uh, consumer willingness to pay for particular brands. And Clark, before we let you go, is there anything else you would like to add? Any upcoming research studies that you're going to be conducting and anything else you'd like our listeners to know or how they can also get into contact with you for anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, myself and the team are busy uh, wrapping up um, some of the more interesting learnings from from this particular study, uh, as there's a lot to dive into, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, But I'm sure there'll be plenty more uh, case studies on the roadmap for us. Uh, In terms of uh, learning more about our company and our um, behavioral uh, methodology, you can visit uh, veilings.com. That's V-E-Y-L-I-N-X.com, V-E-Y-L-I-N-X.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, please uh, don't hesitate to uh, to reach out to us. I think we have uh, an email set up at info at veilings.com. If you're curious about the methodology, I think um, we're all big backers of, um, of using behavioral research because we know that verbal intention without action um, leaves this big gap in terms of understanding true consumer behavior. And for the Tuesday show, this has been Clark Jenkins, senior research consultant for Veilings, and he's been talking with us about Super Bowl ads driving consumer demand. So Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. This is your wake-up call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. And Camila Cabello over there with Liar there on that end from the uh, same album of the same name, I believe, on that end for uh, that spot. That's what, second, first or second album? No, not first. Sec- I think second album. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but granted, we are going to go into an interview over here that we have uh, with Michael Dent on this end, because I know he spoke over with John Ellis for a little bit. But Dallas, how do you think about the interview with uh, Clark Jenkinson? How do you think that went? I think it was really informative just because what, every time we the Super Bowl comes around, we always think about how expensive ads are, and they just keep getting more and more expensive. And it's interesting to see the actual effects that it has on companies and how it could affect their decision-making with future advertisements. I personally don't think I pay that much attention to the ads, except for, like, the comedy value or if I see like um, a celebrity that I really like in an ad and I'm also this is just something that I personally noticed I think more and more ads are including like internet personalities in recent history like if you know Brittany Broski from TikTok I listened to a podcast with her and she was like oh recently I was she was in two Super Bowl commercials neither aired but it just seems like they're trying to get more non-traditional celebrities on Super Bowl commercials which is something that I just think is kind of cool I saw Mr. Beast on one. Yeah, Mr. Beast. Was, was I love Mr. One. Beast. Oh my gosh, too much fun. Uh, and then I remember I was showing somebody the remember the Kia Solo with the hamsters. Yes, oh, I that remember was that. Iconic. Ad. I loved that. Bring one. back ads like that. That kind of are just like make waves out of the box out of the box they just stick with you for a very long time puppy monkey baby puppy monkey baby i I just hate that one though i don't know if this is a hot take i feel like ads have started to become boring like i can't remember any of the recent ones none of them Mm -hmm. really stuck with me except the one where it pretended like the tv turned off Oh, yes, yeah. Or they switched from the Super Bowl commercial. The Tubi? Yeah. Yeah, the Tubi commercial. I actually had Tubi for a little while before that, so mm. it's a good time. But but I think that was the most interesting one just because 
publicly i feel like so many people freaked out about it and it also made me realize some people need to like chill out some responses were a little too dramatic from my opinion but it was like creative but none of them were like on the level of the Kia hamsters or the puppy monkey baby so if you are working in advertisements for super bowl commercials try to get a little more creative that's my task for you for next year that's right we need some creativity Mm -hmm. can't be doing the same old stuff Mm -hmm. so but we are going to throw it over to Mikey's interview for today. And then we're going to go on to a story afterward about headphones and making sure you don't lose them uh, from anyone who's trying to take them away. Uh, so we will get to that when the time comes afterward. I am here with former journalist and political analyst John Ellis. John, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Thank you for having me. So, Mr. Ellis, I'm going to get straight to the point. Now, having a strong background in politics, your history dating back to the 70s, Ron DeSantis is a possible upcoming Republican that may run for presidency. What would his presidential campaign look like, and what would you want to see from him in the upcoming 2024 presidential election? The the thing he has to do is turn it into a two-person race for the Republican nomination. So at at this stage of his campaign, he obviously makes it clear that he's running uh, he raises as much money as he possibly can to intimidate the others from entering the race. He, you know, g- garners endorsements from as many people as he can to further intimidate other candidates from entering the race. Basically, what he's trying to do in this stage of the campaign is make himself inevitable so he gets a one-on-one race with Donald Trump. Whether he wins the one-on-one race with Trump, I don't know, but it's his best shot of winning the nomination. And you mentioned Donald Trump. Former President Donald Trump did announce that he was going to run for the 2024 presidential election. And with DeSantis as now a possible competitor for this race, how do you see these two candidates going against each other? In what ways does DeSantis may have to step up to Donald Trump's political campaign? Uh, Well, Trump is a proven vote-getter on the national stage. Uh, So he would have to be given the advantage. He obviously has a hundred percent name ID. Um, he's also obviously, again, very controversial. Um, and DeSantis's job really is to, uh, employ a sort of gold watch strategy, if you will, which is thank you so much, Donald Trump for your service. We stand upon your great shoulders as we go forward. Uh, I wouldn't, if I were DeSantis being attacking, uh, attack Trump directly. Um, From Trump's point of view, he has to beat DeSantis early. And if he does beat DeSantis early, then he's the nominee. And that's another good point. I I know that Donald Trump had said earlier that he had to try different tactics and, and open a new understanding. He has to have a different model for his campaign. So with that being put into place, do you believe that Donald Trump will adapt to it? Because he already did lash out at DeSantis with remarks saying going against his campaign. What is your opinion on that? Uh, I, I mean, I think Trump's uh, Trump's modest, modus operandi is attack, right? Um, so, of course, he's going to attack DeSantis. Um, Trump's problem is the suburbs. Uh, his strength is among rural and ex-urban voters. Uh, his strength amongst those voters has never really wavered since the 2020 defeat to Joe Biden. Um, but where he has lost altitude is in the suburbs. And it, Trump is in the weird position of always wanting to attack 
but if he does, that doesn't do him much good in the suburbs where he needs to get uh, what he needs to get to plus 50 if he's running against DeSantis one one-on-one. So I don't, I don't, I, I can't imagine Trump not attacking DeSantis. I, I don't know how effective it will be. From DeSantis' point of view, there's no point in attacking Trump. You just say, look, you did a great job. Uh, here's a gold watch. You're retired. We're moving on. Now, bringing it back to the New York side of things, will we see much support in New York for DeSantis, given the fact that historically New York has been a Democratic state? No. I mean, among Republicans, DeSantis will probably do fairly well, although Trump, again, Trump has a strong base amongst rural and ex-urban voters. In the general election, I don't think that DeSantis or Trump would really even bother to campaign in New York other than to do media events. And finally, this is more of a question towards you, Mr. Ellis, for our listeners who want to be more involved in in following political news. So in in your words, can you just explain your own website, News Items and Political News, and what is its goal in terms of spreading political news to the people of our nation? Well, they're both uh, subscriber newsletters, and they uh, seek to bring to the attention of any number of people uh, stories about uh, a world in disarray, about financialization, about politics, foreign and domestic, and about advances in science and technology that I think uh, are interesting or important or both. That's the basic, uh, that's the basic offer. And one more question before we go. For you, do you see more of the younger voters coming out for this presidential election, given the fact that now DeSantis is an option, or will it be more of an older class of voters? Uh, I think that the the youth turnout was up in uh, the midterm election, um, and I think that that, uh, particularly among uh, women, I think that might repeat itself in 2024. Um, I'm less certain about uh, young men, and, and overall I think it depends on who the nominee is, but overall I think that uh, that the turnout will be roughly the same as it was in 2020. Once again, former journalist and political analyst John Ellis. Mr. Ellis, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. And welcome back, everybody. I, I should amend my statement. That was Nicholas Cavellomachia there with John Ellis on that end uh, for the interview there. Uh, but nevertheless, as we already mentioned, we're going to get into a bit of some uh, headphone situations over here. So, Dallas, feel free to take it away for what we got on this end. Of course. So, since January, the New York City Police Department has recorded 21 incidents of thieves riding mopeds, stealing Apple AirPod Max headphones off victims' heads. The popular headphones that retail for $549 on Apple's website. According to an NYPD statement, a group of four individuals are being pursued in connection with the thefts. In each incident, the group approached victims from behind with two people riding each moped, one red and one black. Reportedly, the first incident occurred on January 28th, with the most recent theft happening on February 18th. There still seems to be ongoing investigations in relations to these thefts, and all incidents reportedly took place in Manhattan with no injuries occurring. I just thought it was a really interesting story because I couldn't imagine going about my daily life 
and then suddenly a group of four people on two mopeds just steal my headphones off my head. How does that even happen? I mean, if you have AirPods, like they're not obviously riding it while they're, I mean. I, I, in my vision, it's like there are two people like steering the mopeds. Okay. Like on each moped. And then there's a person sitting behind them on each moped. And then they, in my head, they don't really outline it incredibly well. Um, in the report from CNN, but in my head, they pull up next to you, and then the people on the back of the mopeds just grab the headphones and then drive off. Um, that's the way I'm picturing it. Again, they didn't outline the the scene incredibly well mm. um, due to the report. But one thing that I found interesting about this story is, um, since all, all, all the incidents have taken place in Manhattan, and specifically New York University, which its campus is near buildings, um, which has campus buildings near the locations of some of the thefts. They mm-hmm. even went so far as to send alerts to the students about some of the incidents that occurred nearby in an email. Oh. Um, the university also said that two NYU students had been the targets of attempted headphone theft, and one student had their AirPod Max headphones stolen. And the university just basically advised them to be aware of their surroundings and keep their phones and other valuables in their pockets. Um, I it just It's one of those stories that sounds ridiculous because of the setup and the scenario but the fact that it's happened at least 21 times since january and we're in march it's kind of spooky it's genuinely very spooky because what can you do in that instance i would just be dumbfounded i'm happy nobody was hurt but i would just be dumbfounded but then you would think with a lot of the cameras in the city, they'd be able to find these people at some point. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? Change their mopeds every day? I mean, no I- clue. No clue. But um, I think it's just because for me, I wear AirPods more often than my over the head headphones. But if mm. I'm wearing my over the head headphones, I like push one side off my ear so I can just hear my surroundings. And if I'm like crossing the street, I'll like turn my music off and put them around my neck um, just because I don't like crossing the street with them on. But um, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine what that situation feels like or how you just wouldn't notice. It is like they just like pluck it off your ear. They just like. from the top from the top part, from the little bar that goes across your head. Which what? I So AirPods still have that? I'm uh, no, the AirPod Max are like over the head headphones. Oh, okay. Like the green ones that you might have seen on like Instagram. Oh no, yes, yes, I have Will has those. Yeah, yeah. Will has them. Mm-hmm. Shout out Will Jermaine. Yeah. Um so, like, those ones, I th- it would be easier than AirPods because it has the bar. But, like, I I don't own AirPod Max headphones, so I don't know what they feel like. So they're not, like, so but they're, so they're not the wireless. They're, they're wireless, yes. Oh, no, sorry. I meant they're, they're, they're kind of like this. Yes, they're like the headphones we wear right now on air. For, for reference, since we don't have a simulcast, uh, <laughs> it's just me with these Sony 10-buck headphones. Uh, yes. But, yeah. So it's like that, but they're wireless. Okay. Um, and they're like Bluetooth headphones and people just wear them around, obviously, like how you wear headphones and then people just snatch them off their heads and drive away, Mm -hmm. which my dad is a big fan of saying he's all like my whole life. He's always been like, do not wear your headphones when you walk down the street. You need to be aware of your surroundings at all times. And, you know, dad, you're right. (laughs) Kudos to you for that life advice. Because their their parents didn't tell them don't walk across the street without those. Unless they didn't, they were just like, it's whatever. Because I also couldn't envision this ever happening. 
It's like out of all the things that could possibly happen mm-hmm. in the city, that's that's the one thing that's happened twenty one times. Exactly, it's crazy. But it's also like those he- headphones are ridiculously expensive. Like five hundred forty nine dollars is a crazy price. They look very futuristic. They, they do look the, really uh, cool. Remember the crazy frog, the the, the ding s- ding. Yeah, yeah. I I imagine that with the music video with the headphones. Oh like, it yeah, gives me that mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But those headphones are very expensive. They probably can go for a lot of money um just in general but like the fact that it's happened 21 times still feels crazy and there haven't been updates um on the story since when i found it so i will be on the lookout for updates though and hope that they've caught the people and returned the headphones and that everyone who you know um, had their headphones stolen is safe and sound. Dallas's next dish is going to be solely on the, solely the headphone on the capers. St- the state of the headphone capers. I will keep you all posted and updated. But so far, it's only been in Manhattan. Okay. Oh, well, look out, Brooklyn, Bronx, <laughs> oh, Staten Island. Yeah, it's you're on an island, the but other you know boroughs. what? They'll get to you. They'll get to you. <laughs> so if you have AirPod Max headphones, I hope you really like them because they seem really cool and nice. But be safe. But be safe you, and be aware of your surroundings. Do you like them enough to get another pair if they get stolen? No, That's not it. for five. Not for five hundred and fifty dollars, mm. because you would have spent a over a thousand dollars on headphones. No, I'm filing an insurance claim <laughs> because you can get Apple Apple insurance. Apple Care, I think it's called. It's Apple Care. I don't know how that handles theft, but I would just file it with my insurance company and be like, "Hey, I was robbed." Um, Let's see. Either. Uh, Give me money in relation to the theft. Okay, so your iPhone is lost or stolen. They do do Apple Care Plus with theft and loss. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say anything about the uh, Air AirPods and all that. I feel like it would have to be. The, I would expect it to be the same. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Apple, if it's not, you should make it the same. But yeah, I'm not pay- paying for a new pair because that's too much money to spend. Personally, I would just take the loss. Yeah, I would just take the loss. Well, please, everybody, make sure you go and keep your headphones safe when you can. Uh, and that will be the lesson for us all when we go out on the street, no matter where we are, when the time is there. Uh, nevertheless, though, we are going to head on down to our second hour of the day with the dynamic duo of Dallas Jackson and myself. And we will go and see you there on the other side. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro studio. R-H-U. Hempstead. You discovered. You discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. W-W-R-H-U. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island. Of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. W-W-R-H-U. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
And welcome into hour number two of the morning wake up call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. It's Dallas and myself again today. We got a great second hour coming up for you. If you're wondering what the heck is on the bottom of your shoes, you're going to find out later today as we're going to talk with Dr. Alessandra Leary uh, when the time comes on that end. Otherwise, we're also going to be talking about uh, some uh, fact-checking, as you mentioned, in the first hour. Now move to the second hour for our day today. And then if you want to go to Disney for over 2,995 days, how would you feel? You're going to find that out in just a little bit. But otherwise, we will get to you over there when the time comes. And welcome back to your second hour here of the morning wake-up call. Of course, it is a uh, very snowy morning, if anything. More snow than we've actually really had all year, I'd like to say, uh, during the time. But definitely a fairly chilly day, but not the end of the world. Dallas, I, kn- I know you're not a big snow fan, being from Mass, but is there anything at least we're looking forward to on the weather-wise? Um, On the weather-wise... I mean, it's been pretty sunny the past two days, so hopefully for more of that. I do know it's supposed to be kind of foggy, cloudy today, and I think tomorrow as well. So hopefully bringing back that warm weather. But I do prefer the fact that the snow is on the ground and not actively falling. I know the 50s are going to be good, I'm sure. That'll be a Mm -hmm, good mm -hmm. spot to have. But are we looking forward to anything else coming up? I I know for me, I I was mentioning before, at the break time, we have ASDs coming up for Hofstra. We do have Admitted Students Day, which is exciting because Luke and I are both pride guides, so we love giving our our tours around campus. Um, But yeah, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the Oscars are this weekend, so that's pretty exciting for me. Um, Spring break's also coming up, which is going to be exciting and fun. Any place we're going? Um, I'm actually going to be staying on the island um, for break. But then on the last day of break, I'll actually be going down to Boston. All right. Because... Going down? You're going up. Oh, directions, whatever. I'll be going back home to Boston because, um, shout out to the Hoffbeats. Um, they won the quarterfinals for the ICCAs, which is the International... Or in, Intercollegiate Acapella? Yeah, I don't you're know. You're a pitch perfect organization, Yeah, you're a pitch perfect organization. They won the quarterfinals, so they're going on to the semifinals. Um... And yeah, I have a lot of friends in the Hoffbeats, and my boyfriend's in the Hoffbeats, and he won for best choreography and best or outstanding soloist. So very proud of him. Oh. Um. So I'm going down with two of my friends on f- Sunday, and then I'm gonna hang out with my family for a little bit, and then we're gonna go to the competition at Berkeley, and we're gonna drive all the way back to school for classes on Monday. Oh. But it's gonna be very exciting. Nice. Uh, I know what was very exciting was the Hofstra men's basketball game last mm-hmm. night. I know, lost to UNCW in overtime. But you know what? They they pushed through as much as they could. Mm-hmm. I, I know Jaquan chopped over 20 points last yep. night, so good on him. I'll see him in public speaking class either today <laughs> or Thursday. Uh, so hopefully he'll be around there. Uh, but granted, really good showing from the men's mm-hmm. team. I know, granted, they didn't didn't get over there. But you did say, Dallas, during the, the break, NIT they did tournament. get to NIT. Yep, National Invitation Tournament. starts on the 14th of March, I believe. And you said it's Vegas, correct? It's in Vegas. Um, The entire tournament this year is in Vegas. So here's to the men's basketball team. And also women's basketball plays in the first round of the CAA tournament on Wednesday. Also UNCW. Also against UNCW. So So here's to the women's basketball team. Um, I'm the women's basketball beat reporter, so I'll be cheering them on. Yes. Anyone you're looking for in particular to make a big breakthrough? Uh, Sorella Neza has had an amazing season. Um, She is 
my MVP. I love Sorella Neza. She's amazing. Brady Thomas leads the CAA in rebounding. So Brandy Thomas is a big factor for us. So Sorella and Brandy. And Emma Von Essen has been shooting very well in recent games. Sorrell was also one of my classes. I had oh. her with uh, mass media studies mm-hmm. last year with Dr. Wu. So no, sorry, no, it was no, it was Brian. I had Brian with her. Last. It was celebrity and culture last semester mm. we had, so it was a good time. But yes, uh, definitely looking forward to the team. Hopefully going through because I know we got we got two great teams. I know we're hoping for some good mm-hmm. seasons coming up. Uh, I know it couldn't be like UConn, the one year they both won the NCAA yeah. tournament. <laughs> uh, but granted, I know we can definitely get some good uh, playing out of that. So it'll be fun to watch when mm-hmm. the time comes. But I know, Dallas, we got the local dish over here on this end. So what do we have for us coming up through there? So in your local New York or Long Island news, Richard Nicolello, the current presiding officer of the Republican-controlled Nassau County Legislature, has announced on Monday that he will not be seeking re-election in November. In Rochester, New York, two people have been pronounced dead after a stampede at a Glorilla concert um, this past weekend. And currently, the Suffolk County Police Department have agreed to settle with Latino Justice, a Latino civil rights group, over a 2015 lawsuit that accused the department of engaging in widespread discrimination against Latinos. And yesterday, the LIRR added more morning shuttles trains to Brooklyn in hopes of appeasing recent rider issues with the MTA's newest system. That is all for your local headlines. Oh, I don't know if you all have ever had this experience before, but I know for me when, you know, you just don't figure out your dates correctly and you just don't know what's going on because mm-hmm. I was I took the train shuttle from uh, from the student center, or really the nonstop shuttle to go to Mineola because I had to get fingerprinted. Mm-hmm. And so I have a job coming from the summer, whatever. But they only do fingerprints on Monday through Thursday. Oh, and I went on a Friday. And they oh, still don't do no. Fridays. I'm like. What, but alliteration would be great. It's fingerprint Friday. I mean, you want to get fingerprinted for stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only reason I bring that up is because obviously, you know, with train shuttles and stuff, they had to change the times around because of the new yeah. Grand Central Terminal. So we, I left, I think, around 7.50 in the morning. And then I got there like 8.15, 8.20. They didn't open for another 10 minutes at the main precinct. And then they went in there. They're like, yeah, not till, uh, not till Sorry. Monday through Thursday. Mm, that's Stunk. tough. That's but, tough. I know uh, we were mentioning with a break about that uh, Glorilla concert, though. Was that the Armory there in Rochester? Yes. That was the... The Rochester Armory. And then at least when initial reports, it was sending kind of like a crush that was going through mm-hmm. there, too. Because the report says that they believe the incident was caused by um, unfounded... Some unfounded reports of gunfire occurring, but the police haven't found any evidence of gunshots being fired or any, like disruption or violence or things like that and but people like they think people thought something like that occurred and they were all trying to run away obviously but that unfortunately resulted in the death of two people as of monday yeah, it's scary the world you live in too. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a, I think it was an Eminem concert, and I guess he also had like, well, it was it was in the song. There was like gunshots in mm. the song, I guess, and people were like all freaked out about that. And then Eminem's like, it was it was just in the song. It mm-hmm. wasn't anything that was in there, but it's the society you live in where no matter yeah. what. But it, it even it's just, it's just like sound sometimes, not even like gunshots itself. It's but, very scary. Yeah, very there was scary. I think when Times Square there was like the motorcycle that happened. Oh when the yeah, motorcycle ride and everybody started running everywhere. So mm-hmm. that was the whole thing too. But yeah, scary world, everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's also scary is the weather today. That is, if you're looking for any snow, that is, uh, <laughs> we definitely have snow coming through for you, at least a little bit still. Uh, I know it has changed a little bit since that time uh, when it's gone around. 
Uh, mainly for the period, again, you're looking just about 36 degrees right now at 8 o'clock for you. I'm really going to have a little bit of sun, but I will tell you, if you are a wind fan, you are going to love it today. We got about 22 mile per hour winds coming in for gusts uh, over the period of time till about 5 o'clock. So if you're working the Dolly part 9 to 5, get ready for the where the winds blow. So you're going to be ready for that. Uh, so you'll definitely have those to look forward to if you are a fan. But while we're going in to our other story for the day, uh, of course, it is Women's History Month uh, being March over there. And one thing we always have uh, to see when you're going to is, of course, going to the grocery store. Now, I get it. You probably don't like going to the grocery store. You got to get your milk, your cheese, your eggs, whatever your kids want with those Uncrustables they keep eating. But one thing you're also probably looking to get, of course, uh, is essential products. Of course, food are essential as well. Um, but don't forget the other things. Of course, we have diapers. We have women's hygiene products, tampons, things of that nature that may be needed. Uh, and unfortunately in society, uh, there hasn't what is deemed as the, quote, uh, pink tax in a sense, where pretty much uh, women's items or uh, women identifying items at least are marked up higher for uh, businesses, uh, for consumers to purchase through there. Uh, now, granted, when it comes to diapers itself, uh, Eric Gardner, Art Gardner of More Perfect Union, uh, says that two companies in particular, uh, Procter & Gamble, which of course makes darn everything exist existence apparently and Kimberly Clark uh, quote account for 70 to 80 percent of the market end quote uh, for those diaper products that are in there uh, so definitely that's definitely an issue uh, with that so obviously when they have supply chain issues uh, it essentially just affects the entire market when it has that as well um, period products and other feminine hygiene products um, that's what's dubbed again as the pink tax and while it's not technically an actual tax it's made it's the stark differences in men's and women's hygiene products and other items that tend to be for those who are female identifying uh, however the pink tax is illegal within New York State they actually passed that a couple of years ago um, but other states still utilize the price increase for those products uh, one state in particular is the state of Missouri uh, but lawmakers are actually trying to utilize uh, their own uh, political will uh, to either, quote, reduce or eliminate taxes on diapers and feminine hygiene products altogether, end quote. Phil Cristofanelli, a Republican representative, says that due to inflation, basic necessities are not accessible for families. So he has introduced his own bill to work with lowering the tax. Um, not only is there that bill, but there's 10 other bills that have in been introduced in the Missouri House, but none have gone past committee during that time. So, Dallas, I I'm wondering when it comes to, I mean, I'll just go off uh, if you have any, your own experience mm -hmm. itself trying to buy any of these products and things like that. What what's been what's been through that? It's it is ridiculously expensive. It does vary state by state. Um, some states do have lower or better rules when it comes to like restricting how much money people have to spend. But actually, when you look it up, according to uh, different financial um, sources the average cost of menstrual products would be about was about twenty dollars per cycle as of January 2021 so imagine once once a month for a whole year spending twenty dollars or having to set aside twenty dollars and then according to the National Organization for Women um, that was before inflation obviously has gone to crazy rates and according to that organization that's estimated to be about 200 to 300 per year and thousands of dollars over the course of a lifetime. So it's ridiculous and it can get unnecessarily expensive and I can only empathize with women who, or people who menstruate in general because not all women menstruate and not all people who menstruate identify as women. Um, for people who struggle to financially be able to afford to pay that every single month because it's something that you have to budget for and it's something that you can expect 
to go through. But if you have a family or if you have a financial situation in which you just can't afford to take care of that aspect of your health, you have to sacrifice that. And that can be an uncomfortable experience. It could just mess up mess up a week of your life. And it's very hard. And it's very encouraging to see that government officials are trying to take strides to, I guess, um, even the playing field or help people out because it's unfair um, that there's such disparities when it comes to women's reproductive health or people's reproductive and menstrual health in general. Now, does Massachusetts still have the, the pink tax in there at all? I mean, I will fact check myself right now. At, le- at least have you noticed if you've, if when you've gone over there, if their prices were any higher? Um, Massachusetts does not tax period products. Okay. Um, because they are considered medical supplies in the state of Massachusetts. So I feel like when I'm back home, the cost isn't discouraging. And especially in New York, it's New York also has a ban against it. Yep. So at least in the states that I've spent my, most of my life in, it's fine. Um, states that do have pink taxes, though. I'll, I'll just know for the Missouri story itself that Missouri's sales tax rate is mm-hmm. 4.225%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but food products, at least some food products, are only taxed at 1.225%. Mm. Uh, so they've been trying to get that over there uh, to that particular level for these products instead of just uh, the food products itself as, as being essential products there. Yeah. That they are. So in a Mary Carey, which focuses on like women's health, um, they just talked about like period equity and the importance of just not making menstrual products ridiculously expensive. Um, so one of the states that they uh, currently have taxes when it comes to tampons as of uh, t- December of 2021, Alabama is one of them. Um, it seems to be a lot of states, Alabama, Texas, a lot of states in the South have uh, tampon taxes that are in effect as of December of 2021, which again can be very, very difficult to have to deal with in budget for if you come from a lower income bracket and if you just don't have the resources to um, just take care of yourself in general. And it's hard and it's difficult and it's a health risk. It can be a health risk if you don't have access to these resources. Is there any like state in particular that has a really, really high uh, tax on it or is it just sales tax based? Let me see. State with highest pink tax. Um, that's actually a really good question. I can't mm, find that right now. The sales taxes range from 4 to 7%. Um, and that was... There seems to be 22 states as of September of 2022 with sales taxes from 4 to 7, 4% to 7%. Um, in Indiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Those seem to be the states with the highest pink tax. And we this is um, a story about Missouri, but those are, from what my research seems to say, those are the three states that have the highest sales tax ranging for products like this um but government officials should abolish the pink tax across the united states because it is a these are medical tools i think they should be considered as medical tools um there it's also just it's a bodily thing that just occurs in a lot of people Mm. so it is unfair and kind of ridiculous that if this is something that society acknowledges as a part of just human life the amount of money people have to spend and that goes for a lot of things like don't get me started about um p 
people who have diabetes and um, mm. the medicine that they Finger need for that. Finger and all yep. that. Yep, and yeah. the prices that can get so ridiculous um, for insulin. Don't get me started on stuff like that. But we need to start making it more easy to live. EpiPens. EpiPens. EpiPens Epi should be free. That's my two cents on the matter. If you have a allergy that could um, essentially critically harm you or jeopardize your life you shouldn't have to pay for the antidote that will save your life yep that's my two cents on the matter it's very idealistic of me i understand if you have you know financial reasons why we can't do that i don't care i think people should be able to live without concerns of financially not being able to but that just goes for a variety of topics but um i do know here at hofstra we are doing a pilot system. A uh, shout out to the Wellness and Campus Safety Committee and past committee chairs um, who have been working very, very hard on installing um, period product dis uh, dispensers in bathrooms in the Student Center. And Kayla Staticker, of course. Kayla Staticker did an amazing job um, getting it over the final push, but I do know that Wellness and Campus Safety Chairs, I want to say for like five years maybe, long time, have been really pushing for this to be installed across the university. Right now it is only in its pilot phases, so it's only in a few bathrooms in the student center, but they're hoping to roll it out to more academic buildings here on campus, um, potentially plans for residential buildings. Um, but that is something that's really amazing to see that the university is taking, is committing themselves to trying to bridge any financial gaps for students. And I do think more places should provide free period products or pre-menstrual products just in general exactly and put them in gender neutral bathrooms because not all people who menstruate are women and not all women menstruate there we go but yeah well on on that dallas soapbox <laughs> uh we will go and take it through to the next story that we have i know we've got a little bit more on the political end for this one for about a good 10 minutes before our next interviewee gets here mm -hmm. uh but granted uh dallas i know if you just want to throw in for what you have go on ahead yeah so as we kind of mentioned, this is more of a political story. And political news, on Sunday night, former president, or I believe it was Saturday night actually, former president Donald Trump delivered what some are considering, quote, some of the most thoroughly dishonest speeches at the Conservative Political Action Conference. So essentially this was a conference of, for conservative politicians um, just to talk about a variety of different issues. And CNN actually did a full report on the uh, dishonesty and inaccuracies of a former president Donald Trump's speeches and if you go to the CNN website you can see the different topics that he addressed because they fact-checked 23 of the false claims that Donald Trump made and that is what they're saying is far from the total of inaccurate statements that he's made so there's topics that range from inaccurate claims about his own personal presidency, Joe Biden's current presidency, foreign affairs, crime, election, and a variety of other subjects. So I thought it would be, you know, fun for uh, Luke and I just to talk about some of the topics that we've noticed and then just follow through with the CNN article and report on what he said and how that claim was inaccurate and kind of just the entire situation of it all. So Luke, do you want to start or do you want me to take this one? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go first. So we could do like a little back and forth, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least for one that kind of stuck out to me really was the the uh, former President Trump on job creation that he said he had. Uh, granted, he said he created more jobs than any other president, uh, which is incorrect on that assumption over there. Um, granted, did make six point seven million before the pandemic. Obviously. You don't really expect a pandemic and a presidency to go in effect through that as well. Uh, but nevertheless, shy of President Bill Clinton's, who actually made over 11 million jobs, actually, during that surplus period mm-hmm. over there in the 90s. Uh, but granted, I feel like a lot of the times he just um, overinflates, I guess, if we use the term right, uh, where he'll just embellish really anything that he says for the most part just to kind of get whatever clicks and followers that he needs or supporters on his end if that's the case too yeah and also on top of that um another thing that kind of ties into what luke just brought up is he also made a promise to quote save american jobs if he was elected again and he claimed that we had the greatest job history of any president ever and that is an inherently false statement because cnn reports that the united states lost about 2.7 million jobs during uh, trump's presidency and that is reportedly the worst overall jobs record for any president um and obviously the net loss is attributed largely because of covid pandemic but even before pre-pandemic um the 6.7 million jobs added as you mentioned was far from the greatest of any president ever because Mm -hmm. of uh, president bill clinton's first term was like 11.5 million jobs and obviously the COVID-19 pandemic does skew the numbers because you can't account for that. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to knock him on that. But mm. you can't deny the fact that that's just inherently a false statement because 11.5 million jobs is far from 6.7 million. And that's just a very false claim that he's tried to make to just hype himself up. And I'll, I'll, I'll just go on to the next one if you want, because I, I know you have NATO next. So mm-hmm. I guess in foreign affairs, uh, one thing that uh, he had mentioned was that um, of course, I don't know why you have to keep mentioning the Obama administration at this point for mm-hmm. your own record. I mean, if you have to go back and try and rely on that, I mean, that's already what? At this point, that would be 15 years, actually. 2008 was the election, right? That Oh, goodness. That, that seems like a long time mm-hmm. ago at this point. It does. Um, I was in elementary school i think yeah i was second grade yeah that was 2008 yeah uh but he had said the obama administration quote didn't want to get involved end quote with ukraine uh in terms of supplying any funding uh whereas the obama administration uh didn't necessarily provide weapons to ukraine it did provide over 600 million dollars in security assistance from 2014 to 2016 uh so to assess that no aid was given to ukraine if anything and merely just here's some money and call it the day it was at least supplied for other materials mm-hmm. and just weapons at that point and just to stick with international affairs another speech um that donald trump made he was kind of boasting about uh his ability to secure f- additional funding for nato from other country from other countries in like negotiations and he claimed that quote actually nato wouldn't even exist if i didn't get them to pay up this is inherently just a wild statement to make because nato has existed since the 1950s um and there's just no evidence that it would have stopped existing in the early 2020s because of its long history even without um some members not providing the full funding according to cnn the alliance was stable even with many members not meeting the alliance's guidelines of having members spend two percent of their gross domestic product on defense um so obviously you can't really fact check um speculation of what might have happened um but it just is a statement that doesn't make sense because NATO didn't seem to have any difficulties or issues or fear of just not being a governing body 
at any point in time without Donald Trump's help and support. So it's just a statement that when you read it or when you hear it, you're just like, you think you played a bigger role than you actually did in the grand scheme of things. And I think there's still still some merit in terms of, you know, having countries support for their own GDP percentage. But mm-hmm. I think for him to just be like, well, you know, it wouldn't be there if I didn't go and help and do something yeah. with that. That That's not necessarily the case. NATO's obviously been around, as you already said, Dallas, mm-hmm. from, you know, since really World War II days. Uh, and granted, it's had to keep being resilient throughout that entire time, no matter what came about through mm-hmm. it, because you need to have those strong alliances there. Uh, granted, I know there's the whole thing with uh, Sweden right now going into NATO and a whole uh, scuffle with that. I think with uh, Sweden and Turkey, I'm pretty sure. Sweden and Finland, I know both are trying to get in there, but Turkey's like, mm. no. So I guess there's that. Uh, but granted, I'm definitely going to be some interesting tactics that will be going to be put out uh, when the 2024 election comes. Do Do we have any prospects? Because I know... Obviously, for the Democratic Party, I know that Joe Biden is looking to run. We already mentioned mm-hmm. Marianne Williamson uh, before uh, with the um, interview with Nathaniel Dietrich. So do, do you have anyone in particular, Dallas, that um, is on the horizon? I do know for the Republican Party, it's Nikki Haley uh, has announced that she's going to run for president has ron DeSantis officially announced that he's running for president no so ron DeSantis is not Uh, the republicans right now it should be nikki haley there's this uh business guy and this other vivek no there's the other guy oh Corey stapleton yeah um he's the former montana secretary of state oh no Um, no not him there's another guy oh i'm looking at ballotpedia shut up ballotpedia um so right now republican candidates is nikki haley Mm-hmm. Vec Ramswamy, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. He's an entrepreneur and political commentator, and he announced on February 21st of this year that he would be running. Corey Stapleton, the former Montana Montana Secretary of State, announced that he would run on November 11th, and Donald Trump announced that he would rerun for president on November 15th of 2022. Um, so that's really just the people who have officially declared that they're running for president. On the Republican candidacy for Democratic candidates, as of right now, I believe um, Marianne Williamson is the only person who's officially made an announcement. Joe Biden has not made an official announcement at this time. It doesn't really seem that anybody else has made any sort of announcement. Um, for it, I was gonna say it's it's all hinging on him, really. I think. Yeah. I mean, if President Biden wants to run, he wants to run. I have said this time and time again on the show myself. I do not believe that either Biden or Trump should run again, but mm-hmm. that's my own uh, two cents there because I think you need a general new change in leadership if that's the case. Uh, but otherwise, if there's you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I guess is the expression. But granted, it's it's always the age question. I know that's always yeah. the thing that pops up through there. You He's, know, I. I He's very old. He's a very old man, and I don't know if it's it's fair to even ask him to run again mm. just because of his age. Um, well, I, w- I remember it was, I think, what, the later years of Ronald Reagan's presidency, and re- obviously he had Alzheimer's afterward, mm-hmm. but even the fact, like, during even those, like, last couple years, people thought, like, he, he had a little bit off with them during mm-hmm. that time for early stages. and so. But even then, Ronald Reagan was still younger than Biden was right yeah. now. So you think about President Biden, what happens over those next four years, if there's any problems that go through there, too. Mm-hmm. So. But that's something that everybody will be keeping tabs on, especially with the the small amount of Democratic candidates who have officially declared that they'll be running for election in 2024. And also just in general with the Republican um, Party, who's going to 
try to throw their name in the ring. I do believe mm-hmm. that Don- Ron DeSantis eventually will announce that he will be running for president. So it does seem to be uh, the dogfight will be twe- between him and former President Donald Trump. Yep. Um, but who can swing the base with them the most? Um, but I do feel like the Democratic Party will have a lot more division just in general because even though people are saying believe that the democratic party will just rally around um president biden i do know that we've talked about it a lot on the morning show across different shows that people especially younger voters are very dissatisfied with the age of how old a lot of the presidential candidates are so that's just something to keep tabs on and I'm, I'm going to disagree with the uh, interviewee from before for Danny. I do think there's going to be some defectors, uh, even though it might not necessarily be warranted, mm-hmm. because most likely if President Biden does run again, I don't think you're going to have a lot of people that are going to run against him. Uh, but there's still going to be some uh, people that are dissatisfied, if anything else, mm-hmm. uh, to go to like a third party. I'm, I'm curious about Tulsi Gabbard, because I remember when I was in my American presidency class, Two years ago, I'd like to say now, there were there was like five Tulsi Gabbard supporters in there. And I was like, what in the world? But then, yeah. And then, but, you know, hey, she could run for a third party over there. That's, I mean, granted, I don't think she's going to win. Uh, but nevertheless, something that is to keep an eye out for, for any, I guess, what they say, spoiler candidates there back in yeah. the day uh, for anything, too. But we are going to go and take a little bit of a reprieve. And then we're going to go for our interview with Dr. Alessandra Leary when we get back. So we'll see you then. Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call, only on 88.7 FM WRHU. And welcome back, everybody. That was Two Shoes by the Cat Empire. Uh, definitely more of a unique song for that we have for the day, uh, but definitely for a unique re- report we have for our interviewer here. Uh, so granted, strolling down a city sidewalk, it's inevitable that something will go on your shoes. You might get a piece of gum. You might get some bird dung going through. Uh, pretty much anything can attract the bottom of those poor, unfortunate souls. Uh, yet, it is what we don't see that can definitely be the most harmful to us especially the bacteria that can attract them on even just a sidewalk. Here to discuss shoe bacteria and new findings is Dr. Alessandra Leary, Professor of Chemistry and Chair of Natural Sciences at Marymount Manhattan College. Dr. Leary, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So granted, we'll, we'll just get right into it for your study itself. So how exactly did you necessarily conduct this study? Uh, but also, well, you said that you demonstrated with your research that tiled floor itself only received about 100 of those enterococci uh, that you'll talk about in a bit per square meter, as opposed to carpet floors that got about over 20,000 uh, per square meter. So why are also those services different as well? That is a wonderful question. So. The really novel part about our study is that we looked for fecal indicator bacteria on floor surfaces in the indoor environment. And what we found was that carpeted floors retain much more fecal bacteria than uncarpeted floors adjacent to the carpet. And as you, as you cite, we found, particularly in the entryway, very high numbers of enterococci, which are fecal indicator bacteria uh, per square meter. So in the entryway of the building, we found 20,000 enterococci per square meter on the carpet versus the floor adjacent to it, which was an uncarpeted uh, surface, had only 100 enterococci. So there was a 
several order of magnitude difference between them. And the reason I think is uh, that carpeted surfaces have a lot of fiber, so they have much higher surface area, and the, that higher surface area is going to retain a lot of particles, including bacterial cells, more than in a tile floor or a linoleum floor, an uncarpeted surface. And of course, that kind of floor is easier to clean as well. And so kind of on a more personal um, level, what kind of inspired you to dive into this avenue of research? Well, I live and work in Manhattan, and I walk a lot. And as you walk along New York City streets, you're constantly trying to dodge piles of uh, dog feces and other there's a lot of pigeons in New York City, and there's a lot of avian excrement as well. So I started to wonder to what extent do the pathogenic bacteria, so the disease-causing bacteria, to what extent do these bacteria persist on the sidewalk? And how much do they transfer to our shoes? And then when we walk inside, how much do they transfer to the indoors? Now, I'm a chemist so this is not really my area, but when I did a literature search, I realized nobody had ever done this before. So we embarked on this study using a water quality assay that the EPA uses to assess sewage contamination in water bodies, and we found some pretty crazy results. So uh, you already mentioned a lot of these uh, fungi that might come through or any bacteria through there. So what causes them itself uh, to really become problematic in our everyday life on the city sidewalk, as you mentioned, on carpets, on tiled floors and things of that nature? Right. So we're looking, we're not looking at fungi, we're looking at bacteria. And um, so feces contain a lot of bacteria, but bacteria are everywhere. The question is, how many of them are pathogenic because a lot of bacteria are perfectly innocuous. So we honed in on pathogenic bacteria, disease-causing bacteria that arise from feces. And the major genus that we studied is Enterococci, which are classic fecal indicators. We also looked at E. coli as well, which I think everybody knows E. coli uh, as pathogenic bacteria that are associated with nasty gastrointestinal symptoms. So we wanted to quantify these specific fecal pathogens, not only as potential problems themselves, but also as indicators of other potential fecal microbes that arise from uh, you know, the widespread fecal contamination on the sidewalk. And speaking of, like, widespread contamination on sidewalks, do you think there's anything that NYC officials or different governmental bodies can do to mediate this issue in the city? That's a great question. Um, in New York City, the sidewalks are curated mainly by those who are in charge of the buildings that they're in front of. So it's sort of up to individual building superintendents to curate the sidewalks outside. So that leaves a lot of the responsibility in the hands of uh, kind of private people. Also in New York City, a very small fraction of the dogs have licenses. There was just a piece in the Gothamist yesterday about how um, the, the dog waste, the massive quantities of dog waste in New York City and how 
only a very small fraction, maybe 20% of dogs actually have a license. So if the city really wanted to try to enforce the pooper scooper law, it would be really difficult because, I mean, I don't think the city has even has on record most of the dogs that um, that people have. So, you know, there are there are things you can do with, with technology these days, like track DNA. You can take dog feces, send it to a lab and track it to the dog that did it using the DNA. But um you know, you would have to have people register their dog's DNA in order to do that. And given that very few people even register their dogs with regular licenses, <laughs> that might be difficult. And again, we're talking with Dr. Alessandra Leary from Marymount Manhattan College on shoe bacteria over here that we have to end. So granted, I know we already talked about the city a lot and things of that nature, but what would you see in terms of a nationwide aspect to this? Is, are there other metropolitan areas that could have this issue, or do you find it more centralized in metropolitan areas and not necessarily uh, those suburbs, if you will? That's a great question. I mean, I'm sure this is a problem in agricultural areas. There was actually a study in Alaska in an agricultural area that showed something similar with people tracking um, agricultural waste into different places. Um, I think this is a universal issue, and it probably the, the extent of the bacterial contamination very likely varies on the density of the dog population. We did this study in the zip code 10021 in Manhattan. And in that zip code, there are 2,500 registered dogs. Estimates suggest that that's only 20% of the actual number of dogs. So I would expect maybe 12,000 dogs just in this zip code. And 10021 is a land area of less than half a square mile. So we have an extraordinarily high canine population density here that likely exacerbates the problem. But I would think that to some extent this problem um, exists in, in all cities where you have defecation on the sidewalks and in public areas. And as you mentioned, kind of the potential widespreadness of this problem, how do you think your research could benefit people at large and not necessarily just those in high-density places like Manhattan? That's a good question. I think a lot of cultures practice taking off shoes before you enter your residence um, because it just seems common sense that you don't want to be tracking dirt and germs from the outdoors into your home. So perhaps that habit can become more widespread. Uh, you know, we're not health scientists, so we didn't study the human health consequences of the bacteria. But I imagine if you have particularly babies and toddlers crawling around on the floor, you might be concerned about pathogen exposure. So removing your shoes inside the home is something that everyone everywhere can do with minimal disruption to their lives. And Dr. Leary, before we let you go, is there any uh, other research you're looking to get out of this? Uh, any more opportunities you might be able to do? And then also, how can our listeners contact you or anything else you'd like to add that we didn't get to before? Yeah, thank you so much. So um, we are looking at playgrounds right now. We're interested particularly in the exposure of children to these types of bacteria. Um, and if anyone is interested in talking to me, I, I can be found on the Marymount Manhattan College website. 
if you just Google me, you can find uh, my website there. And my email address is A-L-E-R-I at mmm.edu. And again, that was Dr. Alessandra Leary over there from Marymount Manhattan College. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And granted, we are going to get back to our next story through here in just a little bit. But of course, first, we're going to get to Clyde McFadder and the Drifters and Money Honey before we get to our next spot. So we'll see you then. And welcome back. You are currently listening to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. And once again, it is me, Dallas Jackson, as well as Luke Farrell here today. We're going to move on to our next story, jumping into kind of a Disney special, talking about the news revolving Disney. And as a lot of us may know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is once again making headlines. He is now taking over control of Disney's special district. This special district is basically the county government that governs Disney properties, and this system has exclusively... This system has exclusively run Disney and was always run by business people rather than public officials. It is more specifically known as the, formerly known as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It is now run by the Florida governor. The move to acquire power to govern this district and control the Florida theme park came not long after Disney spoke out against one of the governor's policies, um, especially a gender education bill that the governor has been pushing since last spring. It seems like a move made out of spite and shows that what can be considered an abuse of power. Former Vice President Mike Pence was not thrilled about this move. He said, quote, beyond the scope of what I, as a conservative, limited government Republican would be prepared to do, end quote. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sooney said that restricting a company's right to speak about politics, quote, sets the worst president in the world, precedent in the world, end quote. So I kind of just wanted to talk about this today just because it is a major move that we haven't seen because Disney for like 50 years has really just been its own governing body and has a lot of personal autonomy that we really don't see in a lot of different places, especially on such a large scale. And just to see that it's not only a move that would make this specific new district change the way that Disney maintains its roads and deciding how much Disney will pay for um infrastructural services. Ron DeSantis said last week that the board that he is appointing will also serve as a quote moral arbiter and this is another quote that he had um, that said when you lose your way you got to have people that are going to tell you the truth. All these board members very much would like to see the type of entertainment that all families can appreciate end quote. And personally it's kind of scary to see a quote like that um, especially if they if he foresees them trying to sway Disney's content and the entertainment that they're able to show either like just within the park just because Disney has been really pushing to be more inclusive and diverse especially when it comes to racial and um just diversity in general and just to know that Ron DeSantis has kind of butted heads with Disney especially on a bill just around gender education and the don't say gay bill just in general so it's kind of seems like a scary power move, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting to see that. Well, because usually what conservative philosophy, like I think uh, you said, former vice president said that for Mike Pence said that you really usually have limited government. At least Republicans like to have limited government. Uh, but mm-hmm. granted, 
I don't know why this is a move that DeSantis is necessarily doing. I I find it interesting though that Disney had that autonomy at least because like you don't hear Universal theme mm-hmm. parks having their own autonomy in their own zone. Uh, but I guess that was just the way that the land was allocated to Walt Disney back in the day for building Disney World. Yeah. But, which I think is a bit of a unique case in that instance. But I don't think by any means is it well because you don't agree with the build that I made. I'm just going to take it away from you. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense. And it is it Disney having its own autonomy for such a long time is just by nature odd it it's you don't really see that with many companies but i also find this move to take control away from disney also odd because Mm. of kind of the concept of small government or limited government and i'm just letting like people do what people do but obviously i don't i can't foresee that this new government board or whatever can affect disney content in general but it is they can decide what the theme park can build they might have a way to affect what products can be built in the theme park what can be displayed in the theme park um based on this npr report so that is something that is concerning because they could push back and say oh you want to build a part of the park dedicated to a specific character they could push back against that and not approve the construction of that specific character. I feel like it's going to be, we want characters only from 1970 and before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They they want to keep, they bring back Splash Mountain. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Um, but, so he, Ron DeSantis selected five of what are described his cultural allies and political donors to serve in the oversight roles. One of them is Bridget Ziegler, who is a prominent parents' rights activist, um, just basically about p- fighting against critical race theory and LGBTQ plus inclusivity in schools. Um, that's one of the people. Another one is Ron Perry, who's described as a Christian nationalist. Um, there are three Florida lawyers who are all Republican donors with known ties to Ron DeSantis also on the board. Mm. And those are just the main, the new figureheads, um, who now can that's that's a really a definition of corrupt government if you're gonna have mm-hmm. like your, your cronies basically in the in the works with and you. And on do the topic of that, Representative Rita Harris for Florida... Um, tweeted that, quote, as a reminder, it's 100% not normal for a governor to take over a private business and install his political donors because this business said something he didn't like, end quote. And I feel like that does encompass the response from a lot of people in the situation, that it's just, this doesn't happen. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that Disney could be like, well, First Amendment rights, because a lot of the Supreme Court cases, especially mm-hmm. with... Like for for example, like Hobby Lobby, for example, they're like, oh well, First Amendment, they could do what they want. I do. And th- then- I do think if we ever see a case where they're getting pushback on certain characters being represented in the parks or getting blocked from building um new f- parts of the theme park or trying to s- add different things, I do think First Amendment, the First Amendment, is a topic that they should use. Because they are a private business, this is their their own company, and it's shouldn't the government shouldn't have any say in what is displayed in the park, just in general, unless it's like a sa- like a valid real safety concern. Yep. But sometimes they do see, you know, just critical race theory and then LGBTQ plus inclusion in school edu- public school education as a quote unquote safety concern. Think about the AP African American History course the, you talked about yeah. last week. Yeah, two weeks ago now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So I do think the First Amendment will be a main hot topic button 
for this battle if Disney ever had to actually come to blows with this board. Mm. Um, I'm just more so afraid of the potential abuse of power. We don't really know what the board can actually do. We don't really know what they're going to be motivated to do. They might just be there just to be like a presence for Ron DeSantis to say, look what I did. I'm controlling one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, controlling in quotation marks. Co- I think controlling in quotation marks because Disney can truly has the money and I also think has the lawyers. Oh, well, by the way, fun fact, the lawyer for Walt Disney Company is a Hofstra alum. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's fun. So there you go. If you're looking to looking to have any tuffle with Disney, you're <laughs> tuffling with Hofstra there. You're tuffling with Hofstra. That's right. But I do think Disney has the the money and the lawyers to actually, if a lawsuit needed to come, oh, yeah. they would be able to fight it and be just fine. And remember, the First Amendment is really just for more, like, the government obviously can't mm-hmm. censor what you do, right? So granted, I don't know if that applies on a state-level basis either, though. So let's say if the... I don't I don't know exactly how that one works mm-hmm. there, but granted, at least as an individual company or a corporation, you could be responsible for what you do, but... The government should not is not supposed to censor you mm-hmm. what that is. So I mean, I don't know. We'll see. It, it's it's going to be an odd thing to keep tabs on. Honestly, nothing could happen. Nothing could happen, but a lot of things could happen. Yep. So it's something that I know I personally will be keeping track of because Disney is just always been this major figure in just media in general. A, a little bit too major, in my opinion. A little but. bit too major. <laughs> and again, this board will not affect. The Disney movies or TV shows or films, it's more so about the specific park in Florida and the future of what might be able to be represented at that park Mm -hmm. and how this board might try to ideologically change the Disney park that we know down in Florida. Well, what won't change is the family fun of Disney World. And we're going to flip from Florida to Anaheim to another Disney location of Disneyland. Uh, reasoning because uh, when you're going to any Disney theme park, you know, you might only get to go like one or two times in your lifetime if you're even lucky to do that and be fortunate enough to have that opportunity. Um, But Jeff Wrights has actually been uh, there or at least lived at least around nearly 3,000 lifetimes as Disney World because he broke the record for visiting Disneyland a whopping 2,995 days in a row. Uh, how, you know, I, I really couldn't tell you too much. Uh, but this is actually before the COVID-19 pandemic, so obviously he didn't go in between that time. Uh, but apparently in 2012, according to The Guardian there, uh, he was actually gifted an annual pass from a friend and just started, you know, making the trek from Huntington Beach to Anaheim, you know, going down to the parks. And then he just kept going and going and going. <laughs> And then he was so popular that guests actually stopped him and then they got his autograph. They didn't want any of the Mouseketeers or anything like that. (laughs) They wanted this guy's autograph because he's been there so many darn times. Uh, But Wright doesn't have a pass anymore, uh, but Disney actually did make him an honorary citizen of the park. And he is looking looking forward to going back, of course, for the 100th anniversary for the Disney Animation Studios this year. So uh, definitely a a lighter note to end today, Mm -hmm. uh, but granted... I don't know how the heck you would go over 2,000. Like, what would you do in 2,995 days? I would personally be sick of going after the fifth day. Yep. Because, of course, having that much time to spend in the park, you can really just explore everything. But, like, I've never been to the Disney in California. I've only mm. been to the one in Florida, so I don't can't really talk on what's in the California one or what you can do at the California one. But Disney is also just an exhausting experience. Like, it's yes. fun being there. But if you spend a whole day there, um, it's you're so bone tired because it's a lot of walking and yep. running around. So I can't imagine going for 
almost 3,000 days in a row. I can't imagine doing that and just being entertained the whole time. Mm. Because there's not much new things, I don't think. Not I mean, you can ride the rides all, a lot. They, but they made that Cars Land, I think, a little while back yeah. at Disney. So that, that one was there. I, I don't really know too much, at least on the Disneyland side, but of course you don't have the parks like you do at Disney World, right? You mm-hmm. have the five options that you can really go yeah. around through there. This one's really, you're you're really much one, two, and done, and that's mm-hmm. it. So I don't know. I just My roommate, Cammy, she's from California, and her family's a big Disney family, so they do go a lot. I'm going to ask her if she thinks she could go for 2,995 days in a row, if she can ever feasi- feasibly see herself doing that. But she she's a big Disney person. She loves Disney. But... Just the the sheer magnitude of the amount of times that this singular human being has been in the Disney park is crazy. They yep. sh- he does deserve to be an honorary citizen because that's dedication. Yeah. Couldn't be me. However, I applaud you for, you know, experiencing that joy. It's also got to be really expensive. <laughs> oh, yes. But if you get the annual pass from a friend, hey, you yeah. got the connections. That Yo, that's the one thing in life, people, if you learn one thing, it's connections, connections, connections. 100%. So definitely... Look for that. Meet people on the street. Hey, you never know what opportunity you can find when that happens. Mm-hmm. So definitely uh, have that. Uh, before we go, Dallas, what what do we, I mean, we already did it for the top, but is there anything coming up? You already mentioned spring break's coming. That's going to um, be a lot of fun. I have NYU interviews this week. That's going to be a lot of fun. So. Um, for me, tonight I'm going to be working the New York Islanders game for our Women's Day broadcast. Nice, Very nice. excited for that. Who, who else is on that broadcast? Um, Meredith Frank, nice. Amelia Bashi, Juliana Monte, um, Meredith... Or, oh, I just saw, oh, Julia's in the office right now. Oh my gosh, Julianne. <laughs> um, Maddie Perkins. And, Jade? No, I don't think Jade's tonight. Rachel? Um, oh, well, Rachel's going to be a beat reporter. Yeah. So I guess, yeah she's um, I, that's all the people I can remember off the top of my head if I'm forgetting anybody... Uh, I love and appreciate the work that you do. I apologize if I didn't name you now, but I'm very excited to be on the season's first all-female broadcast. Yeah. Um. So yeah, very exciting. Tune in. It game starts at 7:30, I believe. Were they playing tonight? They are playing Buffalo. Okay, Buffalo. Is, is Kyle Lockposo still up there? Um, he was an Islander way back in the day. Mm-hmm. He was an Islander way back in the day. I'm going to double check to make sure that I get it correct on who they're playing. I, I will make sure my headphones do not get stolen mm-hmm. while I'm at NYU. They are the <laughs> Buffalo Sabres. They okay. are playing the Buffalo Sabres today. So go. that is a fun matchup. Game starts at 7.30. Tune in. Oh, yeah. And, of course, that's on your Islanders Radio Network, 88.7 yes. FM, WRHU. Uh, but please make sure to also tune in tomorrow for another edition of the Morning Wake Up Call. Uh, we'll definitely have you over there. Uh, but nevertheless, please enjoy, everybody. Stay safe and have a good one. Thank you.